you know, you build a great group by being brutally honest with them. And then my feeling is, and there are a lot smarter people out there than me is, I love giving my or our management team skin in the game. And there is a difference. So we're set up as a corporation. We're not giving them stock in the corporation. But what I've found is if I can give key people a percentage of profit on a monthly basis, boy, does that change everything. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today I'll be joined by prominent business leader and philanthropist, Savile Kellner. Today, we will discuss Savile's journey from growing up in Cape Town, South Africa, to building and successfully operating for more than 38 years, the multi-million dollar international manufacturing and distribution network Lake Industries. I hope you enjoy part one of this two-part series with Savile Kellner. Well, good morning, Savile. I'm so excited to have you with us on InFactor this morning on a Saturday morning. And especially right now, we're in the middle of all this COVID-19 pandemic. So thank you for taking the time. I know it's a really busy time for you. Thank you for having me firstly, and Saturday is perfect because I came into the office, social distancing, two words that I really never knew much about until about right. four or five weeks ago. The rest of the world did because I've watched all those old movies like Pandemic and Breakout, and they actually used the word social distancing 20 years ago. So I'm the ignorant one, but now I am social distancing with the rest of them. Well, I think we're all learning along with you. So you are currently CEO of three successful companies, one you've been running for almost 40 years. You have a long track record of startup sales, scaling companies. I think you were born in South Africa and came here in the 80s. Give us a little of your background and how you got to this point today. Sure, sure. So I was born in Cape Town, South Africa. You know, we talk about the privileged society. We weren't wealthy, but I was born white. And when you were born white in 1961 in South Africa, you were privileged for all the wrong reasons and went through high school. Great place to grow up. Imagine Cape Town was like America in the 50s. So it was very slow moving. You know, the values were great. Everything was wonderful. And of course, politically, it was a mess. It really was a mess until America stepped in and kind of took care of things with economic boycotts, etc. But when I was probably about 15 years old, my late father said to me, we've got to get out of this country. And at the time, he was very well connected in Cape Town. Again, not a wealthy family, but privileged because we were just in Cape Town and you didn't need a lot of money to live well. And he said, we've got to get out of the country. And I said, great. What does that mean? He says, we're going to go to America, the greatest country in the world. I said, that sounds wonderful. And he started planning. It was very difficult to get a green card or a visa at that point in time. He started planning. And he actually set up a company called Lake Industries. And Lake Industries was set up for the sole purpose initially of setting up a company here in America as a subsidiary of a South African company So he could do what's known as an L1 intercompany transfer. So he could transfer himself to America. So he said, as soon as you graduate high school, what we're going to do is we're we're going to leave. And I said, Dad, are you sure you want to leave? You're well connected. You have your friends. You play golf a couple of times a week. And he said, absolutely. 
So that was the plan. Unfortunately, when I turned 17 and a half, he was diagnosed with cancer and passed away when he was 61 and I was 18. And my mom had passed away when I was 13. So there I was sitting in Cape Town and I realized that my late dad was willing to give up everything, all of his connections, all of his friends at the age of 60 to come to a strange country and a big country at that. So I said, well, I better do what he wanted me to do. So at 18 and a half, almost 19, I got on an airplane from Cape Town to Johannesburg, said goodbye to my sisters in Johannesburg, both a lot older than me, 12 years and 14 years older than me. And I said, I'm going to America and flew into LAX. And my late dad had a friend in Santa Barbara. And he said, Santa Barbara is the greatest place in the world to live. And I said, great. Landed in LAX in Los Angeles, discovered the meaning of jet lag, slept for a day and a half. And then because South Africa is such a small country, Santa Barbara was 120 miles away, waited for an airplane, took an airplane from LAX to Santa Barbara, Greyhound bus or anything else was not an option. And when my dad passed away, he owned a small percentage in a cookware factory. And this is what's leading up to the whole lake industry situation. The cookware factory was called Nutri for nutrition and Stahl, which is German for steel. And again, I inherited 5% of this teeny factory. And my uncle and my godfather owned the factory. And I said, look, I'm going to America. I want to go study at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And would you guys mind sending me the dividends? And they said, absolutely, go ahead. So I grabbed all the money in the world, which I had, which was $6,500 in Krugerrands, mind you. And off I went. Arrived in Santa Barbara, got an apartment, bought a car, the worst car possible. The car dealer saw me coming fresh off the boat, <laughs> bought a car called a Renault Gordini, which was just the worst thing you've ever seen. And got into the apartment, applied at University of California, Santa Barbara, and realized that there was something in this country called out-of-state tuition fees. So I went, oops. Oh, boy. I didn't plan on that. I had no idea. So I landed up going to Santa Barbara City College doing some night classes. There was still out-of-state tuition fees for that, but I remember taking a business law class at night. And I was running out of that $6,500 and called Uncle Eli and Uncle Vernon. I call them uncles just out of respect. It's an old South African thing. And Uncle Eli was my uncle and Uncle Vernon was my godfather. And I said, hey, guys, I'm out of money. When's that dividend coming? And they said, and again, small factory, they said the board of directors have decided we're no longer going to issue dividends. We're going to reinvest them back into the company. And I went, oh boy, rent's due. Everything else is due at this point in time. I wanted to study at Santa Barbara City College and hopefully transfer to UCSB at some point in time. And I said, this is a problem. I need to make some money. And being a spoiled Jewish boy from Cape Town, South Africa, had no work ethic and said, what do I do now? And the only thing I did is, and I knew about doing is my late dad had me work in the small cookware factory over our summer holidays. And over those summer holidays, I'd go in and I'd pack boxes with the rest of the workers. And it was great for me. I was just learning about the business. So I took out the Santa Barbara Press and I looked for jobs. And one of the jobs was a company selling cookware door to door similar cookware 
to the cook where we made in South Africa. So I applied for the job. I don't think anybody's ever really applied for a door-to-door sales job. You're normally recruited. They saw me coming and they said, come on over. And they trained me for a couple of days. And they said, great, it's all commission. And what you have to do now is you've got to go knock on doors and offer gifts to promote or advertise your product. And Rebecca, I hated it. I was scared. It was terrible. I remember clearly, and I tell great salespeople who I'm associated with nowadays, and they roll their eyes when I tell the story, I used to actually knock on the door and go in my mind, please don't be home. Please don't be home. Somebody answered the door and I go, oh my God, you're home. And that was my first response on my sales pitch. So I went back to the owner of the company and I said, look, I just do not like this. This is not fun. And he said, look, you've got a funny accent. People will pay attention to you. You want to be an accountant by trade. Why don't you work for me in the office and train other people? You know, those days were crazy. I said, great. You know, I feel kind of bad training them, but I can train them on the cookware. So I started doing that and I started working in the office and the owner of the company really liked me a lot. And at the same time, we were in Santa Barbara. He was a smart, smart man. And he started doing real estate development in San Antonio, Texas, specifically commercial real estate development. So he'd say, hey, look after the company, look after the office, I trust you. And, you know, I was learning, I was learning American business and everything else. And this went on for about six months to a year. And he called me one day from San Antonio, Texas and said, look, I'm going to stay in San Antonio, Texas. This commercial real estate business is fantastic. And he said, I'm going to close the office down. And I said, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. Could you do me a favor? Could you not tell the West Bend company in West Bend, Wisconsin, where we were buying our cookware, that you're closing the company? Could you trust me enough to allow me to trade and buy cookware from them with your credit terms? And he was making so much money and apparently like me said, yes, just make sure you pay your bills. So I said, great, this is the most exciting time for me forever. I'm in business. And then I went, oh, my God, what did I just do? I have an office in Los Angeles. I have an office in Santa Barbara. I have 25 employees, and I have no money. You're, and you're all of, what, 19 at this time? I'm about 20 at this time. I 20. think I turned 20, <laughs> 19 or 20. And I went, oh, my God, be careful what you wish for. What are you going to do? So I thought, and I said, you know, I've got to let the staff go. I've got to close these offices. I've got to get rid of the overhead. But there were a lot of salespeople. There were about 50 to 75 salespeople. So I went, wait a minute. I've got a great idea. So I called a meeting with all the salespeople. And the salespeople were working for us at that point in time or for, for Keith, who gave me this incredible opportunity on commission. But I couldn't afford to, to fund the sales of the cookware and fund the overhead and fund the operations. So I called all the salespeople in. We had a meeting in our little office in Galita, which is just north of Santa Barbara. They all came in and they're wondering what's going on. Where's Mr. Keith? No, no, Mr. Keith's in Texas. Don't worry, I got this. And I remember saying to the salespeople, today is the greatest day of your life. The opportunity I'm going to give you is phenomenal. Do you remember that you used to sell this cookware yesterday for $1,000 a set door-to-door and you'd make 20% commission or $200 commission and they all went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I'm going to make you all direct dealers with me just like Mr. Keith was with the factory in West Bend, Wisconsin. And they said, wow, that is great. 
So what do we do? I say, you come and buy the cookware from me for $200 a set. And they said, are we going to make $800 a set? I'm not, I said, you're not going to make $800 a set because you're going to cost of financing. What we would do is if somebody bought a set of cookware in 1982, 1983 for $1,000, they would finance it over 12 months or 24 months. And we would sell that contract, that retail installment contract to finance companies. So I said, you won't make quite $800, but you probably make $600, which allows you to recruit salespeople, pay them 20% commission, do well. Everybody was so excited. They started pulling cash out of their pocket and buying the cookware, and it was crazy. Things were absolutely wonderful. What I didn't know at the time is that I was not allowed to do this per the distributorship agreement with the West Bend Company. Not only did I get lucky, but what happened is other salespeople all across America, Canada, Puerto Rico, heard about what I was doing. My phone started ringing and saying, hey, can I buy cookware from you? And I went, sure, you can buy cookware from me. You know, you're going to prepay by cash. I was shipping cookware like crazy. I was ordering it from the West Bend Company. I was unethically, but wasn't really aware that I wasn't doing the right thing, proselyting salespeople from all over the place. Because you've got these organizations that built their cookware companies for years because you couldn't get a cookware distributorship. Anyway, distributors are buying like crazy. So I remember it was just on my 20th birthday, the West Bend Company had their big distributor meeting at the Wigwam Resort in Arizona. And off I go, and all of a sudden, I show up there, and my name is number one on every list. There are pictures of me. They're going number one in growth sales domestically, number one in growth sales internationally, number one distributor in California. It just goes on and on and on. And everybody's giving me trophies, and I'm going, well, you know, everybody says tough in America. This is kind of cool. <laughs> Not knowing what I'm doing, and they're asking me to speak and everything else, and we speak, and I talk about how difficult the salespeople job is because I tried it, and I start relating the story, please don't be home, and I'm going, you guys are amazing. Thank you for everything you do. And I understood at that time that it was the salespeople that really built our organizations. And then day three comes along and there's a breakout for the top 10 distributors in the world. It's kind of a roundtable meeting. And the president of the West Bend company comes in with the his senior vice president of sales. And we're all sitting around and they say, congratulations, Savile, this is amazing. And then they say, well, let's start the meeting. And they said, is anyone in this room wholesaling cookware? And I immediately put up my hand and I go, yeah, me. And I look to my left and there are no hands up. And I look around the table and there are no hands up. And I went, oh boy, this is not going to end well for me. And I said, did you understand you're not allowed to wholesale? We know you work with Keith. And, and I said, actually, I wasn't aware of it. And they said, well, you can't and you have to stop immediately. And of course, I said, I would. And go back to Santa Barbara, Galida, and I have a registered letter waiting for me that I am no longer a distributor of the West Bend Company and I've been terminated. Oh, wow. And I'm going, you know, I've got this great business. I'm doing okay right now. So I wait, wait a minute, Uncle Eli, Uncle Vernon. So I call up Uncle Eli and Uncle Vernon and say, hey, I've got into a little business here, which is similar to our South African business because it was all door-to-door sales, even in South Africa. And... I said, would you guys trust me enough to ship me firstly five sets by air and ship me a container of cookware on consignment? And when you ship me this cookware on consignment, as soon as I sell it all, I'll pay you and can ship me another one. And they said, yeah, we'll do that for you. 
So I call all those salespeople that are now sub-dealers or dealers back up to Santa Barbara and I have a meeting. I remember I got a hotel room and everybody comes in for the meeting and I, I said, remember I told you about six months ago that this was the greatest day of your life? Well, I lied. Now is the greatest day of your life. And I bring out the <laughs> South African cookware and I say, feel this cookware. It's heavier. It's nicer. It forms a better seal. You can cook in a sealed environment and it's not $200. It's $150 a set. And everybody starts cheering. And I transferred from this lifetime branded cookware from the West Bend Company to the Nutri-Style branded cookware. That was from Cape Town, South Africa. And everybody's going crazy and things are going wonderful. Business is growing. And I start wholesaling not only to the West Bend dealers, but to Regal dealers. And all of a sudden, I'm the guy, you know, I built my business on offering a great product at a great value. Smart people, a lot smarter than me, always used to come and say, how did you grow your business? And I said, price, 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 you know, service and price. And they're going, well, he's a dummy. He can't think of, you know, five things to tell us. So he says price is four of them. But that was the honest to goodness truth. Business is growing like crazy. I mean, it's out of control. I realized that my late dad put me in Santa Barbara and you cannot make a living in Santa Barbara. It's a great place to live if you're wealthy or a university student. So I moved down to the Los Angeles area, Pasadena. Business continues to grow. One day I'm sitting in my office and a gentleman from South Korea walks into my office. His name is Peter Park. And I'll never forget Peter. He was so good and so kind to me. And he said, the South African cookware you're selling is wonderful, but I can give you better cookware for even a lower price. And I said, great. And I said, but I'm kind of happy with the South African cookware at this point in time. And he says, no problem. I'll send you a container. And if you like it, you'll buy it. If not, you'll send it back. Sends me this cookware, Rebecca. It is the most wonderful cookware I've ever seen. It blew away the South African cookware. I call everybody back to Los Angeles and I say, I lied again. I now have even better cookware. I'm going to sell it to you for $125 a set. Everybody goes crazy and everybody loves it. I stopped buying from Nutri-Style South Africa and because I do remember that when I needed them most, what they did is they told me they were going to, the board of directors was going to reinvest those dividends. And I stopped buying. And about three months later, Uncle Eli and I start buying this Korean cookware and Uncle Vernon called me. But right before I do that, I tell them I want to sell my 5% shares in the company because I need the money in America. You couldn't transfer a lot out of South Africa because there were exchange controls. Mm -hmm. Imagine if everybody runs from one country, pulls the money out, the country's going to collapse. But I said, I'm going to try and bring the money out. They bought the shares from me at highly discounted prices. And at that point in time, we were about 80% of the factory in South Africa's business. We were growing so fast. They called me three months later and said, look, you sold your shares and thank you for that. We've noticed you stopped buying cookware from us in South Africa. And the reason I did that is because I was bringing this wonderful cookware from Korea. And they said, you know, are you going to continue buying? And I said, Uncle, you know, can you put Uncle Vernon on the phone? So they got on the phone. I think, you know, this is probably 1984, 1985. And they both pick up a line on the phone. And I swear I said this, and all of his students are going to say, this is the most mean-spirited person we've ever heard a podcast from. And I said, and I was still a small company. I was an S corporation. And I said, Uncle Eli and Uncle Vernon, the board of directors of my company, 
which you're all listening to the board of directors of Microsoft, <laughs> right. have decided to not buy from South Africa anymore. And they pretty much went out of business, I think, two years later. Was this Lake Industries, your company? This was Lake Industries. So I used the name Lake Industries because my dad set up this company, Lake Industries, to do right. that intercompany transfer. So I just used the name Lake Industries, which he set up in 1979. I emigrated here in 1982. And that's how we got to the business. Eventually, South Korea, we moved to China because the anti-dumping duties from South Korea were huge, which I could never really understand because South Korea has always been a great ally of America, China, you know, not the greatest ally, you know, but the anti-dumping duties forced us to move to China. And that's how I got into the cookware business. I mean, I was super lucky and worked hard and still doing the same business today, but with a lot more product. That's a great story, Seville. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons in there as I'm listening to you talk, because, you know, at the end of the day, it was about perseverance. You didn't stop. You kind of had to keep going. And sometimes that's, you know, entrepreneurs, that's pretty much what keeps them going. They got to make the next day. Failure's not an option. You were here. You had to figure out a way to pay your rent and you wanted to build out your dad's dream in Lake Industries. It's a great story. I'm really interested in your thoughts on working through others and on building teams because it sounds like you built Lake Industry really by understanding human behavior and how to motivate people. Obviously, sure. you didn't like selling products, but you became very good at pitching and selling other people to bring them onto your vision. Could you talk a little bit about how you engage and how you retain and build people in your company? Sure. Well, firstly, there's outside the company and they're the salespeople. And the salespeople, again, I was lucky. For some weird reason, salespeople and distributors that worked for my competitors, my competitors always felt like they, these salespeople or dealers that they were selling the product to, were indentured servants. I never felt that way. I felt that if they weren't out there building groups and selling cookware, and it's not multi-level, so if anybody's going, oh my God, this is my, it's never multi-level. We would sell to distributors and individuals and they would resell the product. But these salespeople are the people, and I tell them to this day, that allow me to be talking to you on my computer, and they've created this. So before I started any meeting, I just acknowledged them and gave them the appreciation. And I said, look, we're at this wonderful hotel, and there are a thousand of you in the audience. And all of my friends that would come and support me would tease me because I would start every single speech, and I still to this day, is thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because without you, none of us would be here today. And you don't understand how many jobs you're creating. And I really appreciated the salespeople and they knew I was genuine and they loved the fact that they could do something that I couldn't do. That didn't answer your specific question. Your specific question is, you know, within the company and how do you build people? Firstly, you know, you build a great group by being brutally honest with them. And then my feeling is, and there are a lot smarter people out there than me is, I love giving my or our management team skin in the game. And there is a difference. So we're set up as a corporation. We're not giving them stock in the corporation. But what I've found is if I can give key people a percentage of 
profit on a monthly basis, boy, does that change everything. Let me give you an example. So I have four really great people around me that are smarter than me, that do more than me. And every single month, they get 2.5% of the profits of the company. So as soon as we wrap up the month, they know if we made $100,000 profit for easy math, that their bonus is going to be $2,500. If we make a million dollars for that month, their bonus is going to be $25,000. What that does is invest them in all aspects of the business. They know, I'm a very revenue-centric person. So they know, number one, we need revenue to make a profit. And number two is we need to make sure that our operations are lean and mean, and we're still giving good service, but they are vested in every single aspect of the business. If you think about it, I'm an owner of this company and I make 100% of the profits. I'm giving away right now 10% of the profits. If I get more managers in, why wouldn't I give 20% of the profits away? This helps me not panic about the business on my own. As an entrepreneur, probably the thing you don't like the most is you're out there and you get the highs and you get the lows on your own. This is, there's a group so invested. So I would say that is the number one thing I've done. The other thing I do as well, which again, a lot of more sophisticated people than me say is crazy. In our computer system or our accounting system, everybody has access to it. Everybody can look at a financial statement. And a lot of small entrepreneurs I know are kind of secretive. It's like, all right, you could look at sales order forms. I don't want you to know the cost of my product. I don't want you to know this, this, and this. I want them to have access to it because the minute you start trying to hide one thing, then you've got to hide another thing. And then you've just got to keep thinking and thinking and thinking, well, what did I hide yesterday? So, you know, a lot of business consultants come in here and say, how can you expose everybody, you know, to all of this? You know, what happens if they see you making a fortune? And I go, but I'm entitled to make a fortune because I'm the one taking all the risk. As long as I treat them fairly and reward them when we do well and ask them to understand when we're not doing well and bear the burden with me a little, why the heck would I want to hide it? So I would say everybody in this building, without exception, feel a sense of ownership. So that's, that's the key. Yeah. So what you've done is really built a company around this whole entrepreneurial mindset. So you've got a, a lot of entrepreneurs in that, you know, one of the things entrepreneurs do is they take ownership. So I love your philosophy. Now, this is the way Lake Industries is run today, right? And, and Correct. What products, have you gone beyond cookware? And so do you sell oh, a lot sure. of different products now? We do. So everything we sell is a real niche market. And I love being in that little market because we get approached by the Costco's of the world and the Walmarts of the world all the time. Sell to us, sell to us. And I understand my place in the sense that if I start selling to the big boys, I'm a risk adverse guy and I'm a debt adverse guy. I think it's the whole South African English deal. We don't like debt. It kind of freaks us out. So, yeah, so we talk about the food you eat, the air you breathe, and the water you drink. So ours are all health and wellness-related products. All of our products, with the exclusion of electric products, carry a lifetime guarantee. So we stand behind that lifetime guarantee. If you want to get into specific products that we sell, cookware, cutlery, juices, water filters, water ionizers, air fryers. I know everybody listening knows about the air fryer now, especially college students. If you're a college student, 
go and get an air fryer. They're the coolest thing in the world. You know, you can make French fries in 25 minutes when you get home. You can make everything. I love air fryers. for It's just a plug-in deal and it's great and it's healthy. You're cooking everything without oil or water. You don't have to buy ours. You can just go to your Target, your Walmart, whatever. So we're focused on the kitchen. We're focused on homewares. You know, I have an air purifier in my office now blasting the ozone levels. And there are studies that too high ozone levels aren't great, but there are studies that ozone level kill viruses. Our water filter sales since this pandemic has started and our air purification sales have gone through the roof. It has been absolutely ridiculous. Thank you for listening to this first episode in a two-part podcast series with Saville Kellner. I hope you can join us on the next episode where we will discuss how his entrepreneurial mindset motivated him to take action while the rest of the world was on pause. He was able to create an exceptional opportunity not only for his company, but also for U.S. healthcare workers in need during the early weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic. He will also share how this same entrepreneurial mindset has helped him not only live well, but also thrive with a rare life-threatening disease.